Joe presents Pioneers, together with Open Money. Financial advice for all. Please note that this episode of Pioneers was recorded last year. Hello, I'm John Amici, and welcome to episode three of Pioneers, a new podcast from Joe that aims to get inside the minds of some of Britain's brightest and best entrepreneurs. Each week, we'll interview the men and women who've defined their industry, telling the stories behind the headlines of how they got to the top. My guest this week is Simon Mottram, a man who spent 20 years working in branding, amongst others, Chanel and Aston Martin, before founding the unapologetically cool cycling clothing and accessories company, Rafa, in 2004, that was sold for an equally cool 200 million pounds to a pair of Walmart Airs last summer. Uh, take me back to the very beginning of your working career. What were you doing then? Uh, well, I started my career as a chartered accountant or training to be a chartered accountant, which um, is odd to think back now that I did that. My father was an accountant and I said I'd never do it because I didn't want to do what my dad did. Mm-hmm. And then I found myself getting a degree and going, OK, I, I want to do something commercial, but I don't know where to start. Maybe I'll give that thing a go. And it was it was actually a really good grounding, but it was very hard. So I worked at Pricewaterhouse for four years, qualified, and then went into brands and marketing and design because that's what I wanted to do. So you worked for 20 years in that brands and design and More or less, a little yeah. bit of accountancy. Yeah. Uh, so working for somebody else for 20 years, is that what inspired you to want to go out and do something different yeah, on your own? a little bit. I think I always wanted to do it. I think if you grew up in the 1980s, you were you were all the signals washed over you around being an entrepreneur you can go and have it you know it was the early years of of um or the the peak years of thatcherism mm-hmm. good or bad but what it certainly gave me was a, a feeling that i should do something for myself and i was not really sure what it should be and i think when you're consulting you you're either a career consultant who loves giving advice and never wants to be the principal and that's fine mm-hmm. i never really liked that i always wanted to be on the other side of the table and so I was looking for something for quite a long time. So you say you were looking for something but did, did, was there a plan in there about what that might be or it was just no, something? No, I tried all sorts of business plans you know we do that I'm sure lots of people do that you you sketch out an idea you write a sentence you create a document you may even do a presentation you might even write a business plan and they don't always work and they don't even get past the kitchen table but there was the one that was always at the back of my mind was something to do with cycling because mm-hmm. that's what I loved doing most of all. I mean, I think for a lot of people now that seems like a perfectly natural thing because cycling's obvious, profile yeah. is so yeah. so huge. But yeah. I imagine then cycling was not necessarily uh, the most obvious of choices and certainly not no. you know high-end apparel in cycling. No, definitely not. There were very few people riding in London. Mm-hmm. The people who rode in London were seen as being weird. You know, we were, we were either sort of people who couldn't afford cars or we'd made this sort of weird lifestyle choice or we were wearing spray-on spandex kind of lycra. And there weren't many people you saw like that. So it was always a bit a very fringe activity and very niche. Um, I used to ride, when I was a consultant, I used to turn up at clients sometimes wearing my mountain bike shoes and carrying a messenger bag back in the... 80s and it was seen as being a very odd thing to do um now it seems like quite a natural lifestyle choice i mean a lot of people when they start businesses it's that uh, that gap in the market 
Um, mm. for, for you, is that is that how Rafa started, or was it, it was it something different than that? No, it was very much that. It was I would go to my local bike shop, which is not a bad bike shop, but none of them are that good. Mm-hmm. And I'd come out of it thinking, well. I didn't buy anything and I had a bit of money. You know, I was lucky enough to be earning reasonably well, but I'd come out having not bought anything and having this terrible experience where nobody seemed to really get the passion for the thing that I felt. And I looked around, I travel a lot around the world and for my work, and I'd see the same thing happening in most cities. There was nowhere where this thing had been recognized and where you were, you could see like minded people who got it and offered you nice products and nice services and. I thought, well, there must be, there's a gap in the market, definitely. I might be the only person that is this market, but there's definitely a gap in it for people like me. And I spent a long time trying to figure out, are there more people like me? If so, are there enough? Mm -hmm. And then how do you meet that gap? So how do you fill the gap in the market is a challenge. That that passion deficit definitely comes through. And Mm -hmm. there's a quote that you've got that's brilliant, and where you say that when you started looking around, a nagging frustration became a full-on obsession. Mm, and still is. Yeah. And still yeah. even now. And still frustrating. It's Oh, it's still massively what part's frustrating. still frustrating now. But the fact that it's still quite niche. I love football. It's a great sport, but it's a game really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um whereas cycling to me is so much more significant or at least as significant as football and yet it doesn't get a look in. It's still somewhat niche. Um and that frustrates the hell out of me. I'm not a football fan, full disclosure, but it's not significant. It's because not as significant in your mind as it should be because is it because of its health factors and the other tangential stuff or just because in and of itself there's something special and unique about cycling uh i think in in and of itself there is something special it's something it's something unique you know it's um people say oh, i i'm a long distance runner or i you know i love running and that must be similar to cycling and and it is it's Cycling has the same appeal as running, mm-hmm. but that's only one facet of what cycling is. So it's like if you add running with three or four other sports, put them all together, and you get to what cycling really is. Because mm-hmm. it's got that social dimension. It's got the cultural dimension. It's adventure and exploration. It's a mode of transport. And it's physically about commitment and reward, and it gives you this mindfulness. And It's got all of those things packaged up in one sport. Mm-hmm. The challenge is that... It's somewhat dangerous, and people think it's very dangerous, probably more than it is, particularly in cities. So it's dangerous. It takes you have to have a bike, you have to know how to cycle, and then you have to kind of break down all these codes of strange language and strange customs, which people like me love, but they're a bit of a barrier for lots of people. Mm-hmm. Whereas a football, you you know, from age two, you're kicking a it's tennis ball. It's slightly indoctrinated. You know exactly what yeah. it's all about. Yeah. No, exactly right. So, I mean, looking back at your career, you went freelance in 2001. And, and was that the point you did that because you had an idea or you did that because you wanted space to look for an idea? I already had the the germ of an idea. Um, I'd started putting together the plans for Rafa. So it wasn't a fully fledged idea, but mm-hmm. I definitely needed space to develop it. And that's that's why I went freelance. And um was lucky enough that I could be a consultant so I could work two days a week or three days a week and then spend two or three days a week building this plan. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you said that you sat around your kitchen table for endless nights working up this idea. So paint that picture for us. What was that like 
Well, I, my experience is probably different to lots of people because mm-hmm. I, I had three children when I started putting the plan together and my eldest son is disabled. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty full-on life at home. And I couldn't just say, you know what, this evening I'm not going to help. I'm going to think about this plan that I've got, this harebrained scheme. So I'd tend to wait till that had all been done. Everyone was asleep and then I'd I'd work from then, so, you know, from 10 p.m. or whatever. And because my eldest son, my disabled son, would get up very early and I'd take over from my wife at four or five in the morning, that's when I'd start working again because I could look after him while also writing stuff and exploring things. So it was pretty full on. A full on experience with but meshing life with your passion. But it wasn't work because it, it was totally stimulating and exciting and rewarding. Just even putting the plan together is rewarding. I think that's one of the things that, that people who are drawn to entrepreneurship love, that idea that it's, it doesn't feel like work because it's their passion. Probably. I'm not sure I'm an entrepreneur who is just a, a skill set looking for a problem. Mm-hmm. This is a particular passion of mine. That's why it was so rewarding. I think if I was doing a, a business plan for a utilities disintermediation service, I probably wouldn't get very excited and I wouldn't spend my evenings writing the business plan. I imagine not, <laughs> yes. So um, you were given a book of photos by a friend and, and, and tell us about that and what kind of inspiration you got from that. Mm. So a very good friend of mine who has become a very good cycling friend of mine um, gave me a book for my birthday in 1998, I think, and it was called Le Tour de France Intime, so the intimate portrayal of the Tour de France. French book, beautiful photographs, um, and it covered a period from about the 40s through to about the 70s, late mm-hmm. 70s. And what there were two things that were interesting about this book. The first thing was that all the people it showed, these great heroes of cycle, cycle sport, they were rarely on a bike. It was shots of them eating, crashing in a ditch, having a massage, in the bath, lying on a bed, um, staring out of the window, reading a newspaper on a train, all the stuff that is around the race, Mm -hmm. but it was the human portrayal. It was about the human beings themselves. It wasn't about looking fast or descending quickly or anything like that. And that made me realise actually, and that totally resonated with me. And I thought, well, that that is actually why I love this sport because I do it. And when I see the guys doing it as well and the women doing it as well, it's the connection with the human spirit. And it's a massively challenging sport to do physically and psychologically Mm -hmm. and emotionally. It tests your spirit more than it tests your body, to be honest. And these photographs showed these these guys as amazing heroes. They were they were just really interesting human beings. I thought, okay, that's my brand needs to capture that, not just make it look cool. It needs to be about the human spirit. And the second thing was that lots of the garments that you could see were incredibly plain and pared back and simple because that's all you could make in those days. Mm-hmm. You couldn't sublimation print, so you couldn't have pictures on your jersey and you couldn't have swirly patterns because that was impossible to produce. So they were mm-hmm. incredibly um, graphically very simple, which was much more appealing and much more felt like the sort of thing you wanted to wear and it would be much more flattering to wear that. I thought, well, that's that's what I want to look like and that's how I want it to feel. So it's a very important book. Yeah, it feels like so the, the aesthetic is encapsulated by that. The lifestyle elements of the of your brand are encapsulated with that. Yeah. But then there is the messy part of of actually raising the funds, the capital yeah. to do it. Um, you know, how did you raise that capital? How many meetings did it take to pull together the money to to make this work? Yeah, I mean, so I, 
I think I wrote quite a good business plan. <laughs> I don't think it was terrible. But it was, as you said before, the context was different then. You didn't see many cyclists out there and it wasn't a relevant sport. So, And I couldn't find that perfect example of another brand from a different walk of life where I could say, well, I'm going to do Patagonia for cycling or mm -hmm. I'm going to do Nike for cycling. There was nobody who captured what I wanted to do in a different walk of life. So I had to explain the whole thing from scratch. And to be honest, it wasn't until we did it that I think most people got it. Um, so it, it was quite hard to articulate and the context was, was, was weird for most people. So it took 200 meetings to raise not very much money. You know, I was trying to raise 400,000 pounds. I raised mm -hmm. 140 of which nearly half was from, from friends and family. So, you know, I probably wasn't very good at it to be quite honest, but I think it was also because it was very difficult to get that message across. It's a concept that was a bit alien for people. Yeah, it was ahead of the curve. And mm -hmm. the first rule of marketing is to be first. And we were definitely first. You know, mm -hmm. nobody had ever done this. And in fact, lots of people advised me not to do it because cyclists don't spend money because that was the perception. And the cycling market is kind of broken and not very interesting. These are people in the industry, by the way. So you're being advised by people in the industry do and by friends, yeah. don't do it. Yeah, So much. how much risk was involved here for you? We never felt like risk. Um, as I say, I was a consultant, so I knew I could go back and mm -hmm. work, and that never concerned me. Having said that, I've got three kids and a wife, and I was all in. So, yes, it was quite risky, mm -hmm. um, but it never felt like that. It felt like... I can make this live, I can bring this to life. And if it takes off, great. If it doesn't, then at least I've learned and I've given birth to this thing and I've sort of, you know, solved that nagging doubt that I had. And you said, how much capital did you launch with? 140,000 pounds. 140,000. And that was of how much that you intended to... to oh, begin? less than half of what I intended to raise. Did that and compromise how you, how you launched? Did it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and I, we called it proof of capital... Uh, proof of concept mm -hmm. launch really it wasn't a sort of fully fledged let's really although i felt it was fully fledged let's go for it but the investors were kind of let's, let's just try this thing out um and it wasn't very much money uh and i sold 75 percent of the company to get that money mm -hmm. so it was kind of you know do what you've got to do to get launched and get over the next hurdle i think is is the lesson now, it was clear you had the, the passion, you had that book that had given you great inspiration, you loved the look of the garment, but you're going into creating garments. How much knowledge did you have of that element of, of both the design of clothing, the retail of clothing? Uh, as close to zero, I think, as possible, really. Um, I was a very, and am a very keen consumer of of fashion mm -hmm. and clothes and style. And so I was an educated customer. And often, I think it's often the case that these sort of brands come out of a, a customer thinking they can right or wrong or do things better. Do things better, And having better, the yeah. naive belief mm -hmm. that you think you can get there. And I think knowing I was the, I was the customer, which is the most important thing. So I knew what I wanted um, and I bought in the skills and found the skills and found the knowledge to do the rest. Um but the most important thing is if you know what you want, you know what the customer's going to buy. <clears throat> Not that you know about double stitching or about, you know, seam layouts or utilisation of fabrics or manufacturing techniques. You, you can buy that stuff in. To fill that. Yeah. yeah. And you can find those people. If you're obsessed, as I was, mm -hmm. and if you're very clear who the customer is, which I was, you can make the rest work. 
So you're heading into your launch day, and I think a, a week before launch, you lost the factory that was supposed to deliver for you. What, what was yeah, that like? What- I, it was terrible. I, it was probably my worst day in in any sort of job that I've had or commercial business world that I've had. Um, we tried to make the first jerseys in the UK, mm-hmm. and you can make jerseys in the UK, and there are probably some good factories out there. We didn't find them at the time. We worked with a factory in Nottinghamshire, and we went through about 10 prototypes and I was pretty exacting because this is this is going to be our classic jersey. This yep. is going to be our most important launch product. And I needed it to be really brilliant because I'm going to go and wear a garment for eight hours. It's got to be absolutely fantastic. It's got to work brilliantly, fit brilliantly, look great. So I kept going back with problems. And eventually this guy called me up and said, I'm not going to deliver your products next week. Well, that's- why? And he said, because I don't think you'll accept them because I think you, you know, you, there are too many faults. There are too many things that you need to get right and I'm not going to get there. And at this point, I'd booked the launch party and this exhibition space for a month. We'd built the website. We'd primed the press. We'd done everything. Um, and I said, basically, you know, send me those products with no sleeves and I'll still take them. Mm-hmm. You know, I need products. And he said he wouldn't, which was pretty crushing so, like, what, so what happened what's going through your head I'm, i mean i'm trying to imagine a week before launch what's going through your head when you're off that call the moment you're off that call what happens there well, i walked downstairs to we were, we were in a room above a shop in camden town called fantasy fabrics this shop it's i mean it's like a sitcom you couldn't make it up um we were in a room above there and i'd gone upstairs above that room to make the phone call and i walked down there were two people working with me at the time and i said we've got a problem We've got a week and we're not going to have our main product. So you just instantly switch into safety mode and look for other ways around it. So I went to Paris with 10,000 euros and bought lots of vintage stuff so we could actually surround, fill out the range with stuff that wasn't ours, but Mm -hmm. it was authentic. We pressed on with the things that we could do, some caps and T-shirts and bags. um, And we got... We started resourcing the jersey as quickly as we could. And in fact, it it was quite rapid. It only took us five or six weeks to get them through a different factory in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. But you just get on. You know, you don't have time to sit and put your head in your hands. You just have to go for it. And the launch went then as well as can be expected, or was it for you? Over- Pretty much. I mean, we launched, um, there were a few things I wanted to do. I wanted to hit a certain number of customers of the right kind, people like me. And I wanted to get a couple of pieces of editorial that I thought were really important before this is not before the internet because we were online, but mm-hmm. it was before that really became the most compelling medium. So it was magazines in vertical press. And there were a couple of articles, bylines that I wanted to get for Rafa in those magazines. And we got them in the first week and it felt pretty good. And we had a big party and suddenly all these people who were cyclists in London came out of the woodwork you know they they were hidden away somewhere they were sort of like me they were just riding through the streets sort of ignored by everybody and yet they all most lots of them came to that first event they were kind of inspired by your passion perhaps i think that they could see that what i loved was what they loved Mm -hmm. i think and and that's all we were saying we were basically saying this is the sport of cycling this is what we do this is what we love come and share it with us Oh, by the way, there's some products in the corner. That's but that's still kind of what we do. That's our marketing strategy in a very simplistic <laughs> way. Yeah. yeah. So, so in your business plan, there is a name that is like a, a black hole for for media attention in 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 cycling, and and that is Lance Armstrong. Mm. So, that Lance Armstrong, would you use that quote now? 
If you were um, doing something else, probably not. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Without Lance Armstrong, there's no way we would have been able to. Well, we we could have launched, we could have existed, but it would have been a damn sight harder. Mm-hmm. You know, he he inspired not just me. I think he inspired you know hundreds of thousands of people, and he took cycling from being a very niche thing in the US to being something that was suddenly the Tour de France was on mainstream media. I mean, was there any point, you know, you had this tumultuous start. Was there any point when you thought, I've bitten off more than I can chew with this? No. Really? <laughs> no. No, and we didn't. It, tumultuous, it, it was It was really nice. It was really focused and it was quite successful from day one. But it took us three or four years to make a profit and it wasn't a sort of, you know, boom um, internet sensation because that wasn't our plan our plan mm-hmm. was to get to the people who were like-minded customers around the world and they were kind of under the radar so it's go go really deep in a niche and we did that so it wasn't a sort of you know slam dunk from day one but we could see it was every month month by month it was working mm-hmm. i mean there's a quote that speaks to that that you've given before that that everything to some people raf is everything to some people and nothing to others and that seems, mm. you know, even as a business approach, that can seem a little dangerous because you, you talked about uh, uh, Patagonia and Nike before, and, and they, I don't think, are quite so selective amongst the mm. active that they wish to, to 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 gravitate. True, although there are times when they have been, mm-hmm. you know, and I think um, you have to you have to have the strength of conviction. You have to stand for something. You have to keep standing for something when it doesn't seem like a good idea you know mm-hmm. you have to have that you have to have the ability to do that but as you grow you don't want to box yourself just into one very very tiny corner um so in building the brand it was really important that we were pretty polarizing i felt I'd, i hate the idea of somebody sitting on a fence about your brand that means your brand doesn't really mean very much because you can take it or leave it i wanted to be a brand that you you either took loved it, or you, you loved it, or you really didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And I don't like it when people really don't like us because I, I kind of understand sometimes, but more often than not, I think we we do the right things. But it's a price you have to pay, I think. Um, and and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be purposely controversial or, and I don't think we are actually. I think we just do stuff that we think is right, and it resonates with some people, and other people for various reasons think it's pretentious or elitist is or, one of the words elitist or just not for them i mean what do you um, think of that i mean it's, especially in this context this political context elitist is quite a um a charged word but what do you think about that that charge uh i don't like elitist i don't like um i i i'm perfectly happy with exclusive because i think we'd like to be exclusive to people who are interested in what we have to say i don't want to appeal to somebody who has nothing no interest at all in riding a bike or Mm -hmm. getting involved i'd rather not spend any time looking at them so i don't mind exclusive but elitist is is unfortunate and i think it comes mainly from the price um and our prices have always been a little bit higher than well they started out being a lot higher than most people everybody else has raised their prices to pretty close to ours but we tend to be in the premium end yeah and i think that's what most people would take to mean elitist you ended up with a four-year partnership with team sky 2013 i think it mm-hmm. was how did that come about um i had known um dave brailsford from before he mm-hmm. did the team uh, when he was first thinking about it i've been introduced to him by 
uh, a woman we work with who's David Miller's sister. It's, cycling's a very small sport, so you can get to meet these people. And I'd met Dave and helped a little bit with the thinking for the team. At the time, we were so small because that was 2008 or nine, so we were only four or five years old. We It wasn't even considered that we would be the kit partner they went with adidas Mm -hmm. um but we kept in touch and as we grew during that period and they became somewhat frustrated with a a bland multi-sport brand being their partner they wanted somebody who was much more passionate we started to talk about maybe we should do it so but it was a massive step up for us it was a so I mean, even there, quite an early stage in the in the life cycle of your organization, suddenly you have this massive commitment to Team Sky because there's a ridiculous stat out there, like each rider needs 780 pieces of equipment for each of the years. Well, need, need is the wrong word. Oh, okay. <laughs> each rider was given 780 pieces of equipment, all custom-made, by the way. So, each, so none of that is just off the shelf. Uh, all of that is, it was is all, measured. It made. could have been off the shelf. Um, we decided that... If you're going to do this, this this is the sport you love most in the world. You're going to work with the best team, and you know you're you're all in. You're you're completely passionate about it. Why not make the socks custom? <laughs> Why not make every item of clothing custom? And then as we were doing it, we were thinking oh, maybe we've bitten off a bit too much here, and this That's, is quite complicated. I was going to say there are many entrepreneurs who might think that that level of commitment it's madness yeah would be madness just from yeah. just pure fiscal yeah and and to be honest. Uh, uh, I had interesting conversations with Dave about this. Yeah, they're so exacting, Team Sky. You know, they don't want anything to go wrong. Mm-hmm. So for us to have created so much risk by customising everything was was probably foolish, but it was a great ride and it was you know, pretty amazing to do. And, yeah. um, we learned a hell of a lot. And it was the first year was very tricky. Second year was much better. The third and fourth years were very successful, so... I mean, Chris Froome, I heard he is allergic to, to one of the products that's normally used, silicon. Silicon, right? silicon in the grippers that you have, yeah, and some so, of the prints that we use. So what did you... So you use a different non-silicon gripper and, yeah, we had to develop. As we were customising everything, custom yep. manufacturing everything, of course we could do whatever Chris wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they're looking for marginal gains. So if you're getting a rash or a discomfort, you're going to address it they're going to suffer performance i mean so that yeah. is just one example of the things that were tricky perhaps in year one what, what else was tricky in year one it was just a massive step up i think just understanding athletes at that level and what they need it's a very we'd done teams before at a domestic level mm-hmm. and they and traditionally riders would would just take what they're given you know they would just accept it at this level when you're team sky and you're absolutely looking for every marginal gain and you are the best athletes in the world the demands on performance are so much higher so you know everything needs to be lighter everything needs to breathe better everything needs to cut through the air better everything needs to be visible to the rest of the teammates it needs to look fantastic on tv the logos need to be in the right so much of it was was it was just all up a notch I mean, you almost probably had to stay ahead of the curve on the technology there. How did you yeah. – was that in partnership with people like Sky or was it a separate internal process for you? A little bit separate, a little bit in partnership. Mm-hmm. You use whatever you can. So we, we brought in specialists from outside, from other sports. We worked very much with the Team Sky um, technicians. We worked in wind tunnels. Mm-hmm. We developed skin suits. You look for any opportunity to add value. You know, we created – vests which you could put lots of bottles in when they go and pick the bottles up from the cars Mm -hmm. we did all sorts of work on heating 
filaments in garments so that when you finish at the top of a mountain and you start to get a chill, you can put this jacket on and press the button and heat up and wow. things like that, which mm-hmm. we would never otherwise have done. Um, and it was all exciting and uh, quite stressful. Uh, yeah, and they won the Tour de France three out of the four years. So. Exactly, and I mean, you're a cycling fanatic. So when Chris Froome wearing your kit wins, mm. how does that feel? To oh, you? pretty amazing. That my favourite moment, probably of the journey so far, was uh, 2013, standing on Mont Ventoux, which is my favourite climb where I'd most like to ride, with about a hundred customers and friends and staff colleagues at our mobile clubhouse this big truck we had waiting for the tour to come and round the corner in the lead in the yellow jersey the rest of his kit being raffer mm-hmm. comes chris Froome. it's like wow yeah couldn't have imagined that in a million years that is remarkable it really is so you know one of the uncomfortable things that is now associated with with cycling so so tightly is this doping issue was was there ever a point when you thought your involvement with sport might be with that sport might be compromised by the doping scandals and, and even today the ongoing scepticism? Uh, no, um, because I think the sport is still incredible and we can't turn our back on it and I'm still completely infatuated with it. So I never for one moment thought, oh, for shareholder value and reputation, we should step away from the sport. We're all about that sport. I mean, we're all about what what we ride, how we ride cycling as as a pastime, but that's connected indelibly to the professional sport. So there was never an option or even a thought that we would turn our back on it. Having said that, um, it's in a pretty bad place Mm -hmm. and it does need to improve. And we've been reasonably successful with the sport going through a pretty appalling 15 years. Imagine how it could have been if the sport had been knocking the lights out. So let's talk exit. At the beginning, when you started this venture, did you have an exit in mind? I don't use the word exit, actually, because um, I'm still a shareholder. Mm -hmm. And when we launched, I was a 23, 24% shareholder. Um, So you could say I exited before we launched, you know, if if we're going to use the word exit. There's no exit that's happened, really. We have had a change of majority shareholder. That's that's what's happened, mm-hmm. and that was always something which I felt would happen. I mean, uh, that's that's the life cycle of a business. I wasn't just doing it to have a nice project and build, bring my dreams to life. It was also to create some wealth, so I can look after my family, look after my disabled son. Um, yeah, that was absolutely part and parcel of it. What did it feel like to you when you you came to this? I know you don't call it an exit, um, <laughs> because we had we had a, a previous guest, Dinesh Demija, who talked about um, selling his ebooker's site, and he has a remarkable kind of cognitive detachment from it. I, I suggested that perhaps it would be like his baby, but for him it was very practical. Uh, he walked away with not even a question. Wow. So for you, what was it? What was it like that. getting to that point? Uh, it was completely the opposite. It, it is my baby. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably most people who work at Rafa think it's their baby, and it, it should feel like that. You know, I want everyone to feel completely part of the mission mm-hmm. and and feel a sense of ownership. I think lots of our customers think it's their baby. Yeah, it's the, it's the mark of a, a brand that really works is when customers feel it's their own. Yeah, because it kind of is anyway. Um, so I think we all felt incredibly emotional about this thing and still do. So there's no way I could have just treated a transaction as a sort of detached 
corporate event. Yeah. You know, it's I'm not that kind of entrepreneur. This is a mission, and we haven't finished the mission yet. But this is an interesting step on the way. Um, so it's incredibly stressful, and uh, in some ways, it was really brilliant because you get a chance to tell your story and to you know tell a number of people who are interested in the business all about Rafa and focus on all the things that are good about it and sort out some of the things that are bad about it and show your best self and that's an incredibly rewarding thing um, but it's also stressful because you want to make sure that whoever ends up being your partner in the business gets it too shares your passion and gets it yeah i mean you, you mentioned the the ownership how you have customers that feel like they own part of it mm. and your own people do you have a, a curious wednesday morning routine well mm. not, perhaps not curious for your company but for many companies so tell talk about your your wednesday morning routine and how that might help with your team bonding if you like yeah so the, the whole of um the whole of the journey the whole the way i've set up the company is based on all my consulting experience which tells me that you have to build the brand from the inside out. It's how the culture is internally is critical to how the customer experience ends up being delivered. Mm -hmm. So your the people are the people your people who work with you are the people you start with. Um, so how we build that culture internally is probably is top of my list of things that I focus on. And from day one I wanted it to be incredibly passionate about the sport. I wanted people in the company, whoever they were, to feel the same way as I did, to feel the same connection with the customer, mm -hmm. to feel the same motivation, to want to inspire other people and to get what it means to be a cyclist. And I always rode a bike during the week because I couldn't ride at weekends because of my son. And I always used to ride on Wednesday mornings. So from day one, part of the Rafa culture was you can ride on Wednesday mornings. It's not a four and a half day week. Um, you're supposed to make the time up. Um, and most of us do way more than five days a week anyway work. But it means you can sneak out on a Wednesday morning when it's everyone else is at work and you can do a four or five hour ride and you can do it properly and you can test product and you can ride with other people, you can ride with customers, you can really re-engage and reconnect with why you're doing it. So you're still a partner with Rafa. You're, you, you have just you know new partners there. Is this your, your long-term gig? Are you there forever? Mm -hmm. Really? I don't want to do anything else. I mean, I, I don't want to hang around when I'm not helpful anymore, and that will happen because mm -hmm. I'm 52, and, you know, when I'm 72, I'm not sure whether <laughs> I'll be that much use, but I'm not doing anything else. So, yeah, it's this is my life's work, So and it's it's really not not finished at all. Excellent. Thank you very much. So we have something that we do with everybody, and I really want to ask you these pop quiz questions uh, inside the Axis Studio style. So just a, right. a quick answer off the top of your head. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, being a musician. A musician? Maybe. Which business or company, apart from your own, do you wish you'd founded? I'm a big fan of Steve Jobs, but that's perhaps overreaching. Um, there's a small business in London called Noble Rot. Mm-hmm which is a wine business, and I'm passionate about wine, not as much as I am about cycling, but they do a brilliant job. They started with a magazine, then they bought a wine bar, and they are all about wine, and they've delivered it in such a fresh way. I think that's really good. Excellent. Who is your hero? My hero is probably Marco Pantani, who most people won't have heard of. Um, mm -hmm. who was a, he's a tragic hero because he committed suicide with drugs, mm -hmm. so you know, really not a great tale. But he was one of the riders when I was watching TV 
as a young man who I absolutely worshipped. What is your favourite word? Souplesse. Do you know what souplesse means? No. It's a nice word. Souplesse, it, it is onomatopoeic, I suppose. It's a word that we use in cycling for a particular pedalling style where everything is fluid and easy and you pedal these perfect circles in, a, in an effortless way. If you have souplesse, everyone looks at you and goes, oh, okay, he's, he's strong and he's, he's a good rider. Excellent word. What is your least favourite word? Delay or um, <laughs> can't or anything that suggests not being all in or not going for it. Mm -hmm. Your biggest fault? <laughs> biggest fault is probably doing too many things. What's your idea? Oh, interesting one. What's your idea of happiness? Very personally, it mm -hmm. would be being two-thirds of the way up Mon Bon 2 with friends, being in, not at the back of the group, doing quite well, smelling the smells that you smell on that mountain, um, being in this place where so many of my dreams have come to life um, in that moment, that's that's pretty close to perfect happiness. Gotcha. With all your success, what keeps you awake at night? Uh, worrying about my team, worrying about people in the business, worrying about us taking too long. That's probably it's, it's all about the next thing, really, mm -hmm. for Rafa. Uh, what's your favourite swear word? I say a lot of swear words. I, I quite like bastard. Bastard, okay. Because I'm from the north and I can still say it with a hard air. That is, that is perfect. If heaven exists, what would you like God to say when you arrive? Uh, that's a really hard one because I'm a, a very devout atheist. Mm -hmm. um, so hard to imagine. It ain't going to happen. Um, what would I like him to say? Recognise who I am would probably be a good start. Okay. That's it for Pioneers. My thanks to Simon Mottram. Don't forget you can download episodes one and two of the show and all of Joe's audio offerings from your usual podcast providers. Leave us a review if you'd be so kind and we'll speak to you next week. You've been listening to Pioneers together with Open Money. Manage it, save it, invest it. 